0: Welcome, everyone, to the Master of Educational Technology program at UBC. This is our podcast, the Anti-Racism Speaker Series. My name is Dr. Carrie Ewart, and I'm a faculty member for the Master of Educational Technology program, what we call MET at UBC, and the EDI coordinator and designer of the
1: Anti-Racism Speaker Series. Hi, I'm Tamika Fisher, and I'm the EDI graduate academic assistant.
0: We would like to welcome everyone to the anti-racism speaker series. But before we dive into today's conversation, we want to take a moment to acknowledge the territory on which we gather and the indigenous peoples who have been its stewards for countless generations. We recognize and honor the enduring presence of the Coast Salish people, including the territories of Musqueam, Squamish, and the Tsleil-Waututh Nations. On the traditional and ancestral and unceded territory, UBC Point Grey Vancouver campus of the Mosquean people, I would like to acknowledge the history of violence, the dispossessions and the wrongdoings inflicted upon these indigenous communities and many others throughout history as a result of colonialism and settler colonization. As an uninvited ally to this beautiful land, it is my responsibility to listen, learn, and engage in meaningful action to address the ongoing impacts of colonization and to support the reclamation and revitalization of Indigenous ways of learning, knowing, and doing. In today's episode, we have the esteemed privilege of learning from an Indigenous knowledge keeper who will share their wisdom, experience, and insights on advancing Indigenous education We believe that through collaboration, education, and commitment to change, we will work towards a more just and equitable future. As Senator Murray Sinclair states, it is through education that Indigenous peoples were stripped of their rights, freedoms, languages, cultures, and traditions at the hands of the Canadian government. Instead, Indigenous peoples had to endure violence and racism in many facets. Sinclair believes that it is through education and the collaboration between Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples over the course of seven to ten generations that reconciliation and equity will be fully achieved. It is the belief that through collaboration, education, and a commitment to change, we can work towards a more just and equitable future. We invite our listeners and viewers to join us on this journey of understanding and together contribute to positive change and healing we ask everyone to please take a moment to focus your thoughts and actions on both recognizing and acknowledging the land on which you work, play and live and to the original caretakers of this land. I would like to invite Tamaka to share your land and territorial acknowledgement if you wish
1: at this time. Thanks, Carrie. Hi, my name is Tamaka Fisher and I'm an uninvited settler on the traditional ancestral and stolen territories of the Musqueam and Coast Salish peoples. I'm grateful to my hosts for the privilege of being here today and thank them for their stewardship of this life-giving beautiful place. I am and my father is from the island of Honshu in Japan and my settler mother was born on the territory of the Lower Kootenai First Nation. My intention today is to be a humble learner and to listen and bear witness to the wisdom that will be shared with us so that we can learn and unlearn in order to support anti-racism and reduce the harms that Indigenous peoples continue to experience in education. Thank you.
0: The Master of Educational Technology program educates professionals on the use and the impact of digital learning technologies this fully online graduate program provides a unique opportunity for our students to engage in topics such as the role of ed tech in racism and anti racism. And since the degree program was launched in 2022, close to 2,000 individuals have enrolled in the UBC Met program, with more than 450 students enrolled currently. Met dedicates itself to supporting its learners, stakeholders, and the public to make a positive change in communities. What is the speaker series about and what are we talking about in this podcast?
1: The purpose of the speaker series is to acknowledge the commitment that every individual has to inclusivity and to address systemic racism. With a focus on anti-Indigenous, anti-Black and anti-people of colour racism, this series seeks to identify the responsibility educators and leaders have to facilitating and supporting anti-racist approaches and strategies within their practice to enhance and transform learning environments and learning cultures. With a specific directive being digital technologies, presenters and guests will discuss racism and tools to support equity, diversity and inclusivity and the changing dynamics of the digital age.
0: As a result, at MET, we are committed to a follow-up to each presentation of the speaker series with a call to action challenge. We invite listeners to make one change this month, no matter how small, and share it with us as a next step to this podcast to eradicate racism through community building, education, and through the use of educational technologies. This call to action provides you the opportunities as listeners of this podcast to build on the anti-racist content from the session and make steps towards change. For example, you might indicate what you've heard and thought about from this podcast with a lesson plan that will bring awareness to the issues of racism, Indigenous ways of learning, knowing, and doing, and transformation for students, colleagues, and friends. We will provide you with more details about this call for proposals at the end of this podcast. The topic for today's podcast is Transformational Practices Through an Indigenous Lens.
1: I'm so happy on today's episode to welcome our honoured guest, Len Pierre. He's the CEO of Len Pierre Consulting and is a co-Salish from Kate First Nation. Len is a professor, consultant, TEDx speaker, social activist, change agent, and traditional knowledge keeper. He has a master's degree in education from Simon's Somers- Simon Fraser University focusing on indigenous curriculum and instructional design. His experience includes indigenous education and program leadership from various organizations across colonial Canada. He specializes in the development of educational programs and services with decolonization and reconciliation at its core values. He comes to us with an open heart and open mind and hopes to be received in the same way. Um, at this time, welcome you to introduce yourself to our listeners.
2: Hi, Chika. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Uh, first of all, if I can say, you know, thank you in my language, hi, Chika. Uh, thank you for having me to hold a little bit of space for your viewers and your, your listeners um, today. So my name is Len Pierre. My ancestral name is Palikuluk, and I am Coast Salish from Kitsi First Nation on my father's side and Musqueam First Nation on my mother's side, which is one of the host territories on which UBC is is built. Um, I am the owner and CEO of Len Pierre Consulting. We're a tiny but mighty indigenous consulting firm that specializes in education, training, and project management for any willing um, service provider throughout uh, Turtle Island, uh, otherwise known as North America. Um so yeah, I, I come to the conversation here um, today uh, with an open heart and an open mind, and I hope to be received in the same way when we talk about things like transformation, uh, equity, diversity, anti-racism, you know, I think it, it calls for all of us to have an open heart and an open mind. And I just want to be very transparent from the get-go that I'm here uh, uh, with that that openness and that willingness to to be here and offer whatever knowledge and wisdom I can to to this very important conversation. And I am joining you today from my home territory of Keitsie, located in what is known today as the city of Pitt Meadows.
0: Thank you so much, both Tamaka as well as Len. Welcome to the show. It's so nice to have you here. Now, as you've introduced yourself and given us a little bit of information about your background, could you also give us some information about your role as a knowledge keeper in your community outside of that introduction that we received?
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So I think when you think of, you know, and and many of you who are listening or or watching this, you know, probably have heard of the term knowledge keeper before. Um, Another term I like is knowledge sharer, (laughs) or knowledge holder. Um, But my role as a knowledge keeper is really to act as a historian, to have access to the stories, the myths, the legends, the uh, family histories of of my community of Coast Salish families, and more importantly, Keatsy uh, First Nation um, families. But there are many different kinds and shapes and forms of knowledge keeping in Indigenous communities. Some knowledge keepers are really great storytellers. Some knowledge keepers are really great at ceremonies and medicine making. Some knowledge keepers are really great at uh, preserving and revitalizing our ancient traditional languages. And some knowledge keepers are really good at songs and keeping songs or um, composing uh, Indigenous songs. So my role as a knowledge keeper is to be a a passer on of knowledge. Um, So I often share, you know, the history of Kitsi, how old we are, (laughs) how long we've been in these lands and territories and what we've been doing in these lands and territories, stewarding them, protecting them for the future generations. Uh, for the unborn children of of tomorrow, that's my role as a knowledge keeper.
0: I love that, and I love the idea of knowledge keeper, but more as that sharer and that holder of that knowledge, and being able to bestow that on others. Thank you so much.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, I would love to, and all of our listeners would love to know more about the work that you do, and how this mm-hmm. the evolution of that work, where it's come, where it's going, and where your passion comes from for the work that you do.
2: Yeah, for sure. So for me, I, I mean, I always identify as as an accidental consultant. I mean, this really wasn't in my career trajectory five years ago or, or 10 years ago. Um, this work really started with our company, Len peer Consulting, started back during the pandemic when we were all working <laughs> remotely and virtually over Zoom, never ending Zoom calls and Teams calls. Um that's where I had started to you know, develop a, a, a passion for educating large groups of people over Zoom um, about indigenous history, culture, and contemporary issues um, back in 2020-ish. Um, and some very interesting things were happening back in 2020. I mean, in the year 2020, um, the In Plain Sight Report was released um, in the healthcare setting in British Columbia highlighting the vast amount of widespread systemic anti-Indigenous racism that exists in the BC healthcare system. Uh, The murder of George Floyd happened in the summer uh, in the United States in 2020. In 2021, we had um, 215 uh, children that were recovered in a mass unmarked grave at the Kamloops Indian Residential School. So it was a very interesting time in 2020 and 2021. So it really sparked this desire to engage workforces and teams and organizations and companies in what is what are the experiences of Indigenous peoples in this country? What does reconciliation look like? What does that sound like? Um, and then, of course, when September 2021 rolled around, that was the very first National Day for Truth and Reconciliation in Canada. So the work really started around the need for many organizations, many institutions, Canadian institutions who were finally ready and willing to lean in, to listen to the conversations and the wisdom and the stories of indigenous peoples, to um, listen and learn uh, wholeheartedly to to the experiences of of, uh, indigenous peoples. So that's really how the origin of, of our story where we started, the passion comes from the people we have the opportunity to work with. That's what fills my cup. I mean, I talk about anti-Indigenous racism every single day, and I have been for the last three years, seven years, really, Um, but two and a half years on my own working for myself. And people think that that's a really hard job to really put yourself out there, to be vulnerable, to talk about something people would rather not talk about, racism, inequity, oppression, uh, state violence against Indigenous peoples. But what really fills up my cup is just the passion of the clients that we get to work with, the passion of the audience, the viewers, the people who say, yeah, we're ready. We want to learn more and we're ready to learn more. Can you help us? And I'm like, heck yes, I'll help you. I'll be there. I'll support you along your learning journey. So my passion comes from the reciprocal nature of the spaces that we hold when we are met with. Uh, engagement and good questions and, and people that are okay to be vulnerable with us and their learning journey. That's where my passion comes from.
0: Wow. And I think it does take a lot of vulnerability to say, hey, I'm not quite sure how to approach this work or what to do and really be open. You talked about the open hearts and open minds piece of that. So incredible. And I really, I know we appreciate the work that's being done it's work that's going to take a long long time but it's mm-hmm. purposeful and it is as you said it was needed and it is continuing to be needed
2: mm-hmm. so
0: thank you for that and just what are some of the key principles or values that you think underpin indigenous ways of learning knowing and doing and how do these differ from that mainstream educational approach would you say? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the most fundamental approaches that we use in the spaces that we hold uh, with me and my team, I have a team of, of almost 30 indigenous and non-indigenous consultants who I get to work alongside. And we all have the same formula in how we hold space, how we share our stories and how we support the clients that we get to work with. And the guiding star for all of the work that we do is this, this value of respect, Respect for the work, respect for the people who show up to our spaces, and respect for ourselves, too, because it's a lot to put ourselves out there and share these stories and share, you know, the atrocities of the past, like the residential schools, the 60 Scoop, Indian hospitals, health experimentation on starving Indigenous children in residential schools. We still need to respect ourselves at the same time. And respect is, you know, not just a value we hold in the work that we do. Respect is also one of the oldest laws of these lands and territories. It's embedded into our cultural practices. We have over 640 different First Nations groups in Canada alone. That doesn't even include the Métis or or the Inuit. Um, So that's 640 different languages, different customs, different traditional practices and different traditional laws. But almost every single one of indigenous communities throughout North America all have this law of respect, this law of respecting one another as fellow human beings, the respect for all living things. So we really hardwire that and mobilize that in in our work, Um, respect for the work and respect for the people who we are working with. Other values we have are to be less colonial, uh, to be anti-oppressive, Um, I've learned from Dr. Vicky Reynolds, you know, you can't fight oppression with oppression. So we must strive to be uh, anti-oppressive in the work that we do. Um, We also lean in towards our ancient cultural value and ways of being and doing and knowing of uh, reciprocity. So we're not just going to show up to a space and, and teach you something. We know that we are learning at the same time too. So we're also looking to learn from our audience. We're looking to learn from the people that we are working with. And the best way they teach us is their hopes, their fears, their concerns for anti-racism work because there's a lot of hopes and there's a lot of fears around that. And the hopes and fears of transforming education is a lot different than the hopes and fears of doctors who work in healthcare. Uh, the hopes and fears of doctors you know, who wanna mobilize anti-racism in, in healthcare are gonna look a lot different than you know lawyers working in, in a government system or a legal system. So we learn a lot. We learn just as much from the people we work with um, as we hope they're they're learning from us. So that's the reciprocal nature of, of, that's an ancient, ancient indigenous cultural value. And it's also an indigenous way of being and doing and knowing. And for, you know, your audience, the listeners and the viewers, you know, for those of you who use the First Peoples principles of learning, know full well reciprocity and respect are hardwired in, into that work. So that's in stark contrast from a lot of Western colonial, corporate, uh, uh, modern, um, approaches, uh, uh, to the work, um, corporate approaches are usually quite hierarchical, um, quite linear, quite didactic, um, you know, (laughs) I have the image in my mind of like, you know, here's somebody pouring out all of this knowledge and then into this empty cup of the learner, of the student. And that's not really reciprocal, that's quite linear. So that's where I see the the, the contrast and maybe how we mobilize our teachings, our cultural values that are as old as time into some of the work that we do that's different from colonial ways.
1: Amazing, thank you. I, I love that reciprocity piece and the vulnerability piece and, and, you know, sharing on both sides. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Very important. Do you have Um, any, Oh, sorry, go ahead.
2: Yeah. I was just going to say it's, it's one of the most transformational parts of of our work and the practices that we do, you know, in our, in our culture, we have a saying, um, and that saying is don't be backwards. Um, That's a Coast Salish saying, don't be backwards. Don't, don't be backwards is kind of implying that you make it all about you. So listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. And then when you start sharing your story with me, I'm going to turn my back on you. And it's like, well, it's not really about me anymore. Right. And so that's an ancient teaching that we have in our Coast Salish ways of being. And so my dad always says, taught me that growing up, don't be backwards, son. So I'm like, what the heck do you mean by that? And then when I started teaching this, he's like, Oh, I'm like, Oh, that's, that's what he means. So another value that we have too is solidarity, you know, solidarity is so important for us in the work that we do, you know, as indigenous peoples, we can't do this work alone. (laughs) Right. And we shouldn't do this work alone. Mm -hmm. Uh, we do this work with other, you know, marginalized or targeted communities in, in this country, uh, people of color, um, or what I like to call the global majority. (laughs) Um, you know, uh, you know, we're in solidarity with you. If you are a newcomer to Canada, We bet you experience racism, discrimination, just like we do. So we're in solidarity with you too. If you identify as a woman, oh my gosh, I bet you've experienced discrimination based on your gender, right? We got your back. We're going to be here in solidarity with you. If you identify as gay, lesbian, trans, queer, bisexual, two-spirit, non-binary, we're going to be in solidarity with you too. That's what I love about the reciprocal nature of the work. And I think that's also something we can all learn from when we want to mobilize anti-racism work and equity work and diversity work.
1: Yeah, being in community. Yes. Yeah, I love that. Thank you for that, Lynn. Now, do you have any recommendations for listeners regarding considerations when choosing learning technologies in the classroom or in online learning?
2: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I'm always looking for is obviously you want any kind of technologies or resources that you are using the promising practice, at least in the recommendations or the advice that I would offer is to always look for indigenous led uh, initiatives or indigenous authored or designed um, resources. So one of the things one of the technologies or I don't know if you if this is what you mean by technology but one of the things that I use with my students is TED talks. Um TED talks because number one they are very authentic cuz they're coming from a living breathing indigenous person and TED talks are quite accessible having having done to myself um you know and so I find that it's a good way of it's a good way of amplifying indigenous stories in the 21st century. And storytelling is an ancient cultural practice that we've been doing in these lands and territories for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. It's a part of our DNA. And so what a beautiful way for non-Indigenous students to learn about Indigenous stories than out of their own mouths on, on a TEDx uh, platform. Um, those are things like audiobooks that are produced by Indigenous authors. And more importantly, if you can find some that are authored by elders or residential school survivors. You know, those are really powerful um, technologies I would use because it's kind of like this combination of technology with indigenous culture and tradition, with oral storytelling.
0: It's an incredible way, yes. And it's an incredible way to really share those stories that without technology was not necessarily, didn't transcend uh, cultures and different communities and things like that. So Mm -hmm. I love that. Now, can you describe some of the traditional teachings and learning methods that have been used within your community for generations? I know one is very much that's kind of an overarching piece is the narrative, that storytelling. But how these particularly influence the ways that communities transmit cultural knowledge and wisdom from generation to generation?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the most important ones that is, <laughs> it's funny, it becomes a trend in education today, but it's just been not a trend in indigenous culture. It's just been a way of of mobilizing knowledge uh, since the beginning of time is experiential learning. Um, now, <laughs> that's what we call it, right? With today's, you know, Western modern education system and pedagogy, we call it uh, experiential learning. But that's all how our learning happened, Um uh, in a traditional sense, I mean, if you wanted to learn how to hunt, how to fish, how to be a good storyteller, how to be a good uh, leader in the community, or if you wanted wanted to be trained in healing and medicine making, you know, it would come from years and years and years um, worth of of training and mentoring by an elder or a leader who is known to be really good or gifted in that area. And it wouldn't be like, you know, reading in a textbook or studying a lesson, it would be hands-on experiential learning right from the very get-go. And it's so funny because sometimes I will, because of I, I, I run an education company, I will take very intelligent, very highly qualified, um, um, educated, learned people who have master's degree and doctorates. And then we go into an experiential learning exercise and I say, okay, can you come in, and do this? And they're like, can you give me an orientation first, or is there like a guide? Is there some lesson I can follow? I'm like, no, just put your hands on and start, you know, uh, cedar twining, right? And they're like, no, we need a a lecture or something first. So it's very interesting to to see the these worlds kind of like uh, interweave weave with one another. But that's how we typically do things in our culture. Was that everything was experiential, and another modality of of um, passing on uh, knowledge would be the relational. So mentorship, mentorship and guidance, you know, um, is something that was 24-7, 365 days a year, not necessarily within a categorical, you're going to be in classroom Thursday evening from 7 till 9.50, you know, every night. And, you know, here are my office hours. Um, and then we end at, at the end of the semester, right, which is typically how education and training goes today. But ours was lifelong learning. and And so, you know, relationships to support your learning. Um, mentorship and coaching and guidance and cheerleading would occur from the moment you met the person until, you know, the, the master, the leader, the mentor would pass on to the spiritual realm. So experiential learning and mentorship were two really, really significant modalities of, of, of passing on the knowledge.
0: That's amazing. And I think slowly, um, Education is getting there, not necessarily Mm -hmm. in the way that it's that people talk about lifelong learners, they talk about that active participation and that experiential and learn by doing. But do you have any suggestions as to how those practices could be interwoven and integrated into contemporary educational settings?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think if, if you look at, at, you know, diversifying education programs today, we're already doing it. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have more and more experiential learning programs in various, you know, vocational training programs in colleges and universities. Right. I mean, if you see outdoor schools in elementary schools, first mm-hmm. of all, I get really jealous because I'm like, there was no outdoor. Or schools when I was coming up in elementary school, I would love that, right? Because I think that's ultimately as, you know, when we're children, that's where we're hardwired to be is outside playing and learning out on the land, not in a classroom with fluorescent lighting and you're in a classroom, a stuffy classroom from 8.30 a.m. until 2.30 p.m. So I already see this diversification of educational um, programs. What I think that we can all do is, as educators is to think outside the box um be innovative and creative in in how we want to build deeper more meaningful relationships with our learners um so if we get out of the four walls of the institution and go do a lesson out on the grass you know under the trees or under the stars or out on the water because it has some relevance to the content of the curriculum you're teaching that's transformational learning um and if you are in a place of of Investing in relationships, lifelong relationships with with learners, in a mentorship type of of capacity, then you know I think that that's really meaningful um, as as a as well because what we're doing is we're community building, and in Western world and contemporary society we're really good at community building. I mean, if you have a professional domain, I mean, if you talk to a bunch of doctors they have their own world. They're out on a different planet, doctors, the same thing for lawyers. (laughs) We have our own professional practices. And I think that there's a lot of room for mentorship in that. So I already see a lot of these things happening. It's funny because Western science has a funny way of catching up to ancient indigenous knowledge and ways of being and doing and knowing. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. Yeah, relationships being central um, to everything. So what would be one really important action that an educator could take to make Indigenous students feel welcome in their classroom every day? Mm. Sort of every day thing, you know, what's one sort of thing? Yeah. So oh, I
2: think that when I think and it's such a good question, because my mind immediately goes to, you know, as Indigenous peoples for far too many years since the dawn of the education system, entering the hallways and entering the classrooms, as soon as we walk through the door, we either feel one of two eyes. The first eye is we either feel like we're an imposter or the second eye is we feel invisible. Um, are we in the right place? Do we matter? Does anybody in this classroom think matter that that we have showed up today? And so I think simple eye contact, a smile, hello, And state their name. How are you today? How are things going? Goes such a long way. And I remember, like, because I have my master's degree in in education from Simon Fraser University. And I remember when I first walked into my very first class in my in my graduate program. I had like the biggest debilitating imposter syndrome. Um, poor classmates of mine were coming up to me and introducing them to, them to myself. And I'm like, I felt like I was in, like, I couldn't hear them. I was so disorientated because I was so anxious. I was like, my imposter syndrome was, was so bad. And when the lesson or, and when the lesson started, I, or we we're getting settled down to get the lesson started. I kind of felt like I'm going through a million things in my mind. Like, what if I just pretend I was sick and I just left, If I just left the classroom right now. Or I'm pretty sure at some point, somebody's going to come out of nowhere and like tap me on the shoulder and be like, excuse me, sir, there's been some terrible mistake. You actually didn't meet the criteria to get into this course. So we got to, you know, escort you out of the thing. Like that's what my mentality was going through. And what alleviated so much was the professor came over to me. He probably saw me sweating in the classroom, really. (laughs) And he came over and he said, hi, because he knew who I was. So he said, hi, Len, it's really good to see you. I'm so glad that you're in this course. And he didn't say this to, he was doing this to a couple of the other students, but then I think he saw what I was going through and rather than avoiding it or just letting me sit in it, he came and he said, I remember reading the letter in your application and we were so excited and everybody was so excited that uh, we were like, we got ha- to get Len into this program because he's got some things, he'll- he's probably going to teach us. And so him validating me and just seeing me and not letting me be alone in my imposter syndrome and my sense of invisibility I was like, oh, okay, I can be here and I should be here and I'm in the right place. So when it comes to, and I say that to all teachers, I'm like, don't, don't feel like you're going to step on their toes or make them feel awkward or uncomfortable, but I see you, right? And validation. And as Oprah Winfrey says, right? As human beings, we all want to be validated and we all want to be seen and heard. And that's and that little thing goes such a long way.
1: Wow. 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 Thank you for sharing that story um, with us, Lynn. I mean, that's, that's very vulnerable. And, you know, it's, it's so important. Everybody does want to be validated, you know. And, and, I mean, that that is such a beautiful thing that you've taught us today, just to meet and greet every student and say, I see you. I mm-hmm. see you, and I'm happy that you're here. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, thank you.
0: I think it also shows courage showing up.
1: Mm. And,
0: you know, that's a huge step in that way and incredible to be able to kind of say, we value mm. you, but also you had the courage to be here and to show up and to face those fears and those anxieties. And I think that kind of tilts into that next question about in what ways you feel that colonization and historical trauma continue to impact indigenous education.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: You know, so if you want to speak to that, that would be incredible.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, number one, I think that's just important in echoing and reflecting on what you just said. Uh, The history of of colonization in in this country is is hardly historical. It's still alive and well today Mm -hmm. And, and state violence and, and, and state oppression is still very much alive and well today, too. So I think the first thing is, is for folks who are listening, that it's not a thing of the past. It still very much shows up into our classrooms and into our workplaces every single day. So one of the first things I would say is that it's important to know that our education system is a colonial institution. I mean, especially if you work in colleges and universities, there's only one thing more colonial than colleges and universities, and that's the government. (laughs) Um, Super, super colonial. So the colonial systems aren't designed with indigenous peoples in, in mind. And so that's where the imposter syndrome comes from so many Indigenous students and learners is is I'm not usually reflected in in these places of learning. I'm not usually reflected in these places of of work. I mean, if you look at all the statutory holidays in Canada, you know, which cultures are complemented with those statutory holidays, not the diverse multi multiple cultures that call this place home and have many holidays, right? They're, they're Catholic and, and Christian religious holidays. And so already there's some misalignment with your own holidays and what you choose to celebrate. So that's almost tenfold for Indigenous learners. Um, there's also high amounts of transiency and high dropout rates uh, among Indigenous learners today. So, we are overrepresented in high school dropout rates, but we're also overrepresented in post secondary dropout rates as well. A lot of us feel so happy getting into our institutions of study, whether it's trades or sciences or uh, general education. We're so happy that we got accepted to university, but staying in university is really, really hard if you're living in poverty or if you're overcoming, you know, um, mental wellness um, issues, issues with your own mental wellness. Um, staying in college and university is really hard, you know, if, if you have children to, to feed at the end of every day, um, multiple children, or if you have aging parents and multiple children. Um, so burnout is, is another um, key thing that impacts Indigenous education um, today as well. And a surprisingly uh, new emerging issue in Indigenous education that is an issue, but it's not necessarily a bad problem, is the burden of representation on Indigenous peoples in education today. Because <laughs> in full transparency, you know, we as Indigenous peoples have been fighting tooth and nail, <laughs> blood, sweat and tears for generations to be included in, in these conversations in 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 designing learning programs. And it's been like these little centimeters of movement of progress that we've made over maybe the last 60 years. But in the last six six years, it's like the tsunami has kind of like overtaken all indigenous professors, all indigenous support staff, indigenous administrators, indigenous learners, elders in residence programs and First Nations communities. Now there's like a mandate, there's a duty, or there's an encouragement to decolonize their education, to create culturally safer classrooms, to reconcile universities. And all of that needs indigenous representation. Mm -hmm. So we have these huge, huge colonial systems that need representation from indigenous peoples. And at the end of the day, there's only so much of us to go around. So I call that the burden of representation and that's just you know it's not a bad thing we need that we need that that type of engagement on such a massive level we just have a hard time keeping up uh, to it and keeping up with it so i think that's important for for the audience to to take away with is that can bring us back to this place of patience patience and humility that if we are sending out invitations to local first nations elders Or maybe even indigenous staff and faculty in the institution it's like it's the busiest time I've ever seen for a lot of my colleagues and I've been in in indigenous education for like 25 years now and I remember when it was like a push-out culture that we were pushed out of rooms we were pushed out of schools because it was like no 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 this has nothing to do with you and we're like no this has something to do with us this has to involve indigenous education and now it's like we're invited to every meeting every gathering every project and so you know if 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 the audience can you know find it in their heart and their mind and in their spirit for that that patience and that humility don't give up be persistent right um, this is about persistence and consistency keep showing up and keep asking and keep learning and and i promise you one of us will will show up right if you provide the space one of us will show up
0: and i think perhaps it also speaks to the collaboration and that allyship that's needed in order yes. to be able to take this further and take some of that burden <laughs> off yeah. in a way. So, Absolutely. yeah. Now, what would you say in terms of any advice you have for educators who are actively seeking to work to decolonize their practice and their pedagogy? How might they start? Because so mm-hmm. often that's a huge question. Where do we even start? What do we do?
2: Yeah, when I look at decolonization and reconciliation, I mean I look at re- reconciliation as, as building up, it's creating new relationships with indigenous peoples, new programs, new courses, new institutions. Decolonization is you have an existing structure like curriculum, pedagogy, classrooms, institutions, and then you deconstruct them, you renovate them. Um, so before you construct or before you deconstruct or renovate anything, you need a safety plan, right? And by no means do I have any experience in con- The construction industry, I don't. Um, But, you know, I know that before constructors go on any site, there's a safety briefing, there's a safety plan, and there's a muster area, right? So that's why I say start learning about cultural safety, Indigenous cultural safety and humility before you get towards the actions of decolonization and reconciling your curriculum, your practice, your courses, because you want to be safe in how you decolonize your work. You want to be safe in how you reconcile your institutions. Because within cultural safety, there's more foundational learning to happen. And that learning is going to really center yourself as as a professional. You're going to learn about your power. You're going to learn about your privilege. You're going to learn about how to be a good ally. You're going to learn cultural safety strategies on decolonizing your work. Cultural safety and decolonization are very similar, but they're not the same things. Cultural safety is exactly that. It's kind of providing this pause so that we have more tools in our tool belt to do the good work of the deconstruction, the decolonization. So I highly recommend doing a deeper dive into learning about cultural safety for professional practices before the decolonization work. And again, it's gonna come back to this place of constant self-reflection. Two tools that I will share with with your audiences the greatest tools that will transform any professional practice. Um, a constant re-examination of your language and your behavior. And I do this for myself because I hold big spaces every single day in front of large groups. And I'm always bringing myself, did I say everything okay? Was my behavior okay? Did I come across as appropriate or did I come across as f- offensive or overly assertive? So I'm checking my own power to make sure that I'm safe with the people that I, I work with. So those are some tools and strategies that I would offer.
0: That is fantastic. And I think very well, it will be very well received by everybody because it's wonderful mm. advice for all of us and a way yeah. for us to continue to check, you know, am I present and am I here? Am I really reflective of my ways of being and my actions and my words? So thank you so much for that.
1: Yes. Thank you for that. And, 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 And what I got out of that, too, is acknowledging the lens that we are viewing the world from as as part of that safety. Mm -hmm. So that really takes us into this next question well. So for the education administrators among our listeners, how can they support moving this important work forward in their institutions? What Mm -hmm. would you suggest?
2: Yeah, that's a, I love that question. Um, so with administrators, leaders in, in education, right, have some of the greatest opportunities to help mobilize this work and help it come to fruition or to manifestation. I mean, one of the biggest things that leaders can do, administrators can do, is advocate, right? Advocate for indigenous cultural safety, advocate for decolonization, advocate for reconciliation. You don't have to be indigenous to advocate for indigenous, you know, issues or indigenous initiatives. Um, Ideally in society, we want to speak up culture. So we want everybody to be talking about indigeneity. We want everybody to be talking about indigenous issues and opportunities for embedding indigenous initiatives, just like how you don't need to be a woman to be a feminist. You know, we don't want, you know, just indigenous peoples advocating for ourselves. That's not the purpose of advocacy. The purpose of advocacy is you use your power and your position in your organization to advance uh, meaningful causes like decolonization and and reconciliation. Um, Two pragmatic um, strategies would be to also participate. Number one, um, show up to the places of the learning because this applies to you too. Um, And number two would be to probably the hardest but it's one of the ones I will always advocate for is to help strategize sustainable means of funding um we to for all the transformation and the work that is required a lot of administrators sit at a table where a lot of negotiating and and politicking happens around where dollars are spent and people institutions will often tell me we don't have the money for that we don't have the money for that. And I will say, okay, but just so you know, I've found this trend in Canada that we have a lot of money for things that we think are very very important. So maybe it's not so much finding the money. Maybe it's just taking a look at our current value system and where we're currently investing um, things. We don't have to create anything new. I think that we have everything that we need to move forward. Um, So I would say those two pragmatic things, participation for you, but also, you know, being creative and innovative and finding sustainable means please don't go asking Indigenous departments and Indigenous companies for for the money. You know, reconciliation is about taking ownership of this work too. So for institutions, departments, teams, we got to own that too. So I'm always looking for a standing line item that is an annual Indigenous budget that that can help push uh, the the organization towards more progress.
0: That completely makes sense. And I think that reallocation... Based on Indigenous-led initiatives is that important kind of next step. And like you said, there's money there. (laughs) Just Mm -hmm. where are we allocating it and what are we deeming to be of importance? Mm -hmm. So I love the way you said that. So with that said, can you share any success stories or examples of Indigenous-led initiatives or programs that you're directly or indirectly involved in that have... Mm -hmm effectively incorporated those indigenous knowledge and pedagogy into mainstream education.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, certain programs and there's so many success stories. I'm like trying to narrow them down to a handful that I can share that are comprehensive. Um, so like I, I, all of the greatest success stories will always come out of innovation, um, being creative and strategic and, and seeing a need and finding a way to get that need fulfilled in a colonial institution. Um, so one of the greatest ways that I've seen, you know, community, community being a, an indigenous value and relationship building, right? Um, mentorship programs provide some of the greatest um uh, uh success stories in, in educational institutions. So, and that can take so many different forms, you know, where uh uh fourth year university students mentor first year Indigenous university students and create a mentorship and they start to create a community. Huge step in in, in in the right direction for creating that, avoiding that burnout that indigenous learners face or that cultural alienation that indigenous students face. Um, one great initiative that I seen was, you know, training our youth. So I worked with a university that I have lots of universities that are clients of mine. Um, one university was having a hard time recruiting elders to join their university, right? Because a lot of universities have elders in residence programs and so this university came to me and they're like, Len, we need help with recruitment. I'm like, okay, what's your story? They're like, wow, we advocated for more funding because the students said they want more elders and the staff said they want more elders, but we created you know, three new elder positions and nobody applies for them. And so it's the burden of representation, right? So I said, well, don't forget that your youth have a lot of what elders have. They're just elders in training. They're not elders yet, right? That's they're it. knowledge keepers in their own respect. They're elders in their own uh, respect. I know so many students who already go to the school that are drummers, drummers and singers that are hunters and fishers that are storytellers. Have you ever thought about them asking them to be a knowledge keeper or a cultural advisor for the university that teachers and professors can also access and fellow students can access. And they're like, no, but that's great, right? And then the students loved it because now they have a, a a contract with the university where they get to lean in and offer something that they are masters at. So that's being strategic and innovative is, is, yes, we have elders, but we don't just have elders. Those youth, those knowledge keepers who are young people, maybe they're in their early 20s, maybe they're in their late 30s, but they're still revered for their knowledge. So I just call them elders in training. And they have a lot to offer the the good work moving forward too. So those are two examples that I mean, I could go on and on and on, because those are successes are the most the fun things to talk about, right? Because they're they're milestones, they're markers of change in, in our organizations.
0: Right. But I think that it also gives everybody a really good idea as to what they can do, not always calling on elders, but calling yeah, exactly. on future elders. And I love that term that you used. Yeah, because they are in the making and they've utilized and can utilize their learnings and their knowings and their beings in that respect. I love that. So we've touched on this, you know, here and there, but so often educators, non-Indigenous educators, they approach Indigenous education and ways of infusing different teachings in their own classroom, but are very hesitant to do so and fearful of being able to, although coming from it as a, a place of positive intentions, are fearful of saying or doing the wrong thing. So mm-hmm. what role can non-Indigenous educators and al- as allies play in supporting Indigenous-led efforts to decolonize inter- education? And recommendations that you can make to, and I think you mentioned it at the beginning, that don't be fearful to make mistakes and to try and things. But I would love and we would love to know more as to how to get started to take that fear and kind of run with it.
2: Yeah, yeah, no, I really really appreciate that 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 question. You know, I have clients that I get to work alongside all throughout the country in healthcare and law and private corporations, presidents and CEOs or, you know, librarians. And no matter what their professional background is, the biggest emotion that I work with and coach with with clients is fear. It's always fear. Whether they're whether they've been on their learning journey for 30 plus years, or you know, they've been a newcomer to Canada in the last, you know, two years and they're very passionate about their learning journey and they want to be an ally. But you know, there's no difference in their feeling because that feeling is fear. So people tell me all the time, they're like, Len, I'm afraid. I want to be an ally, but I'm afraid of doing the wrong thing. I'm afraid of saying the wrong thing, and I'm afraid of causing unintended harm to the people that I aim to be an ally to. And I'm like, Do not worry. Please do not worry. Fear gets such a negative connotation in the Western world, especially in our professional lives. But we need to remember that decolonization, reconciliation, cultural safety, those are journeys, not destinations. It's a practice, not perfection. And that's really hard for us to swallow as as professionals. We're often driven by our sense of perfection but please know this work is not gonna be perfect, right? Any social justice work, it's gonna be bumpy, it's gonna be choppy and you will make mistakes. And mistakes are not a bad thing. That's this We teach this to our students, don't we? Mm-hmm. Every class, every cohort we have, we say, don't be afraid of making mistakes because mistakes are just lessons learned really, right? Mm-hmm. Which is the most powerful transformative source of learning. So if you have a fear in your heart about saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing and you're afraid of being met with correction, right? (laughs) If an elder corrects you or a knowledge keeper corrects you or maybe an indigenous colleague or maybe an indigenous student corrects you and says, hey, this is how you should have done it. Hey, this is how you should have said it. You know, please, please know that in our culture correction is a sign of respect. Correction is a sign of care. If we correct you, we care about you if we correct you, we respect you. <laughs> because if we didn't care about you, or we didn't respect you, we'd let you walk out of that context and make the same mistake a million times over. So how inviting is that if you have a little bit of fear to not be so devastated if you are met with correction that you do have latitude to make mistakes, right? Mm-hmm. Because that's ancient in our cultural practices too, because we're so experiential learners. You know, when my dad first brought me onto the boat to teach me how to fish, I tell you, there was a lot of corrections that I was going through. And I think my dad (laughs) probably wanted to throw me overboard, (laughs) but he had to have patience with me. And so I couldn't, you know, be devastated every time he said, no, son, that's not how you do it, right? And so we need to find that humility in ourselves too, to know that we're not going to get it right all the time. And so if you're ever met with correction, I mean... (laughs) your initial gut reaction is probably going to be embarrassment or guilt or shame, but then your training can kick in. Right. And you can be, Oh oh, yeah. I remember what Len Len was saying back on that wonderful podcast, that correction in their culture is a sign of respect. So I can, I can, I thank you. Right. And responding to that correction with gratitude. Thank you. Wow. Thank you. I mean, the fact that you pulled me to the side and offered me a, a lesson a lesson I will turn into a teaching or learning that will only enhance my ability to do this work. Thank you for that. Right.
0: I think that's so powerful and so important that you shared that with us, you know, new learning. And I think most importantly, we're consistently unlearning and relearning Mm -hmm. and learning. And this, this goes to that point. So I know, for instance, as a faculty member in the master of educational technology program, we use the overarching frameworks of equity, diversity, inclusion, decolonization, anti-racism. And students are consistently looking both in their professional as well as in their personal lives to frame their teachings around the first people's principles of learning. It's become mm-hmm. a very embedded and important practice. So looking at that, I'm wondering if you have any resources any readings anything that you think would that you could share with our listeners that you think would help advance that their practice
2: mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely I mean one of the the greatest resources two resources that I will share with you uh, but the intention of these resources are and this is the most transformative work the greatest transformative role work will happen when you're able to look through the world through a different worldview through a different lens. So what I'm asking here is, is to look through an indigenous worldview and it's really hard to do. It's easier said than done, isn't it? (laughs) Because it's like, how do you begin to look through the worldview of of a world, of a lens that isn't yours? So two powerful transformative resources that change the way I look at my own worldview is, is a a book about story work and a book about uh, plants. So the first um, transformative book that I read when I was studying at UBC for my teaching degree was indigenous story work by Dr. Joanne Archibald. And you think about stories as just stories. And that's a very superficial way of looking at stories. But when you learn into the indigenous worldview of what stories are and that we are all storytellers, especially as people who work in education, we who work in education are like the master storytellers. That's all we do is tell stories every single day. Right. And so when you look through something like story work through the eyes of an indigenous Cultural lens, it transforms. You actually get to peek through that lens of indigenous peoples, and you get a sense of the values, and it changes the way you look at things, everyday things. And you're like, mm, I bet you there's more to this other thing that we talk about every single day or use every single day. The other resource that I would recommend is um, Braiding Sweetgrass. Uh, braiding Sweetgrass is talking about the the um, um, uh, plants as relations, plants as relatives. Uh, plants is living, breathing things with teachings and, and with stories and legends um, about them um, as well. Again, it kind of puts you through this lens of being able to look through an Indigenous worldview. And if you're able to look through an Indigenous worldview, you might be able to tap into it one day.
0: That's so amazing. Thank you so much. Sorry,
1: go mm-hmm. ahead. <laughs> I just want to say thank you. So... Len, as we move to conclude this incredibly insightful and thank you so much and meaningful conversation, we would like to ask one final question of you, and that is, what are you, what are your hopes for the future of Indigenous education? And what are your views as to how we can collectively work towards a more inclusive and culturally sensitive education system?
2: Mm, love it. Um my hopes for the future of indigenous education is that it is not we we will arrive at the day where indigenous education is is not an add on or is not supplementary or not a supporting uh initiative but rather it's intertwined with everything that that we do um because i think that our land our territory miss our knowledge, miss our ways of being and doing and knowing. Not only that, I think that the world is yearning for a different worldview. I think that the world is yearning for something new, but is actually in fact quite old, which is indigenous knowledge. Because if the world were to listen to indigenous knowledge and indigenous values, the world would change drastically. If you have concerns about the climate catastrophe that we're currently in. Oh my gosh, if we tap to indigenous worldview and values, the response to the climate catastrophe across the planet would look drastically different. If we wanna talk about human rights and equity, diversity, inclusivity from people, we have a thing or two to contribute to those narratives, to contribute to that work, because we have laws, we have ancient teachings about how we're supposed to walk together in this walk of life. The most ancient laws in in, in North America that are indigenous is the law of respecting one another, the law of sharing with one another, and the law of journeying together. Um, if you're a human being, we must journey together. We must have each other's back and have each other's side. It's only colonial practices that taught us, you know, how to, you know, divide and conquer and outcompete compete with one another. I mean, if you question for a moment, where does marginalization come from? Marginalization exists because we exist in a colonial country, uh, a colonial country that's only designed with very few in mind. That's why we have marginalization. So when I think of indigenous education, I think about, you know, what would a decolonized education system look like 100 years from now? And so, if you've ever seen that cliche image of, you know, the difference between equity and equality, right? You see the 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 kids who are on boxes, wow. um, yeah, yeah. And then uh, decolonization 100 years from now would we'll be tearing down that entire fence. Why do we need a fence between the children and the game, right? That's my vision for the future. Is we see how really. Uh, inequitable and fundamentally flawed are a lot of our systems are, and we lean into indigenous knowledge because we have so much con- to contribute to the world that is really complicated and complex. But we as indigenous peoples, you know, we don't think in five-year strategic plans. We don't think in, you know, four-year political terms. We think in in centuries, We think in seven generations, back to that quote, but that you opened with by Murray Sinclair, right? Our plans span span beyond centuries because we always ask ourselves, what kind of ancestor do you want to be? Right. So that's what my vision for the indigenous education is not an add on. It's just a part of everything that we do in in this colonial society.
1: Thank you so much for that, Lynn. You know, I'm actually feeling a bit teary right now with that visual of tearing down the fence um thank you thank you for that so thank you to our guest Lynn Pierre for your thoughtful impactful and enlightening responses that address the transformational practices through an indigenous lens today um we're so grateful and so thankful um for you being here with us today and sharing your wisdom
2: thank you so much for having me Hechka
0: thank you and do you know what reminds me of Wayne Dyer's um quote, if you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. Mm. And so if we really look and investigate things from an indigenous lens, things will start to change the way we look at the world, the way we look at our practices, the way we look at ourselves, they will truly change. So you have helped us so much to unpack the approach to indigenous education from a very culturally appropriate and equitable lens in a clear and dynamic way you're an extraordinary person you know you've impacted so many people and i know for a fact based on this podcast you will continue to impact so many more and your teachings will resonate with people and they'll continue on so as i mentioned before and prior to the presentation our intention for the speaker series Is to eradicate racism through small and large steps towards change so as such we've created a call for action and really a call to action to move the teachings and learnings from today's podcast forward so we challenge every listener here of today's podcast to participate in one act of change this could be having a conversation with a neighbor Or colleague about something that resonated with you from today's podcast. It could be creating an interactive lesson, a workshop, a session on anti-Indigenous racism with the inclusion of voices of all peoples in Indigenous communities to share with students, colleagues, peers, staff, You might create a subset presentation of the podcast to react to the discussion of today's session and communities to draw awareness to the issue. So we ask that you continue this conversation. Don't stop here. And we want you to share this by implementing the content from today's session into your personal and professional lives and use the hashtag, hashtag met or hashtag UBC anti-racism, which will be available on the site. So, when it comes to the availability of impactful and culturally sensitive and relevant lesson planning, that address anti-racism, there are very, very limited resources, which Len, you'd probably know, that are available. So we urge on a grander gesture for any interested listener of today's session to submit a lesson plan that aligns with the content from our interview with Len Pierre with your curriculum in an attempt to create good quality anti-racism and anti-indigenous racism resources to put into the hands of educators. So this lesson plan call to action, it can be found on the MET website and using the URL that's on our site, as well as this will give you some type of means to establishing that means to action. So here on the website, you'll find the template, you'll find the submission criteria, some lesson plans that will be on this website will be offered a grant by the Edith Lando Visual Learning Center to create additional digital resources, which will support your lesson plan. And all lesson plan entries, including K to 12 post-secondary graduate studies are all encouraged and welcome. So again, we go to a quote from Nelson Mandela, that education is the power weapon Which you can use to change the world. So, we are asking you to change and help change the world. And we go back to Senator Marie Sinclair, and that change will happen through education. No act is too small.
1: One last thank you today to our guest, Len Pierre, CEO of Len Pierre Consulting. It has been such a pleasure, and we are so grateful. Thank you so much, Len, and thank you, everybody, for listening.